It was a hot summer evening on July 27, 1988, when Debbie Trailer and her 13-year-old son Myron began their walk to Debbie's parents' house. Debbie and Myron were both planning on doing their laundry when they arrived, since Debbie's washing machine had recently broken. About halfway into their walk, Myron asked his mother for permission to stop at a nearby store called OK Fish and Chips so he could buy a soda. Debbie agreed, and they split up. She continued onto her parents' house, walking through a vacant lot, while Myron turned the other way to the store, his bag of laundry still in his hand. When Debbie arrived at her parents' house, she told them that Myron was still on his way. However, hours went by with no sign of him. Finally, at 9.30 p.m., Myron's family reported him missing to the police and also began looking for him on their own. Myron's innocent request to stop at the store has now turned into a 22-year mystery because he remains missing till this day. Hi, I'm your host, Gigi. Welcome back to Noir True Crime Files. Tamel Trailer was born on October 1, 1974. At the time of his disappearance, he lived with his mother Debbie and his brother Charles on 16th Street and Nancy Lane in Phoenix, Arizona. Based on my research, Myron seemed like a good kid. He had just finished the sixth grade at Sierra Vista Elementary, was in a basketball league, had a paper route, and was a loyal churchgoer at Southminster Presbyterian Church, where he was a member of the youth group and youth choir. Myron also enjoyed reading and drawing. When police began their investigation into Myron's disappearance, they initially treated it as a runaway case. Myron's family quickly shut that down because first of all, Myron had never been in any trouble and wasn't involved in gang activity or drugs. Also, his last known movements were not of someone who was planning to run away. Earlier in the day, Myron had completed his paper route. Had he made it to his grandparents' house, Myron was planning to call his brother Charles, who was in California visiting an uncle, and after that, Myron was going to attend Bible study with his best friend, who also happened to live across the street from his grandparents' house. When news spread about Myron, his minister, Reverend George Brooks, organized a search party. A bus filled with volunteers canvassed the entire neighborhood, including the South Mountain area, but nothing came up. The search continued for a few more days, but unfortunately, the group was still not able to find anything. As far as suspects, police were able to rule out Myron's parents. Leroy Williams, Myron's father, was in prison at the time, and Debbie passed a polygraph exam. However, people were beginning to blame Debbie for Myron's disappearance, the main reason being because she let him go to the store by himself when normally she would have gone with him. In 2016, Sandra Trailer, Myron's aunt, did an interview with Yi Young Jiang for azcentral.com. In the article, Sandra admits that Debbie was battling a cocaine addiction and that she often had to step in and help her sister take care of the boys. A month before Myron's disappearance, 
he and Charles had actually gone back to live with Debbie for the summer after they had stayed with Sandra during the school year. Sandra says detectives told her that they believed Debbie had found a way to rig the polygraph test and had taken something to help her pass. As police continued their investigation, they interviewed four witnesses who were at the OK Fish and Chips at the same time as Myron. One witness was left unnamed, but two were working at the store at the time, and the last witness was actually someone who Myron and his family already knew. Lena Watt was a key witness in Myron's case because she was the last person to ever see him alive. She was working behind the takeout window at OK Fish and Chips when she saw Myron come in and order a wild cherry soda. He pulled out some change from his pocket to pay and drank the soda quickly after Watt gave it to him. Then Myron ordered another soda and took it with him as he walked out the door. Lena says Myron waved goodbye as he left and she saw him walk in the direction of his grandparents' house. Besides Lena Watt and the two other witnesses, police also interviewed a man named Gitas Leroy Mintz. Mintz was in a relationship with Debbie Trailer and lived with her and the boys. Mintz was a well-known cocaine dealer in the area and had been in and out of jail. He had served seven years for an aggravated assault in 1981 and was released five months before Myron disappeared. Police named Mintz as a suspect in Myron's case, and since then, he has refused to discuss the case further. A month after Myron disappeared, Mintz was sent back to jail on attempted robbery charges. He was later released in 1997. In Jiang's article, Sandra says the night Myron went missing, Mintz showed up to her parents' house with his arm in a sling, claiming he had been bitten by a dog. I have a few questions about Mintz and Debbie's possible involvement, so I'll expand on them a little later. Myron's case was one of three high-profile missing children's cases in Phoenix at the time and had received the most amount of tips. Unfortunately, the tips police received often sent them on wild goose chases and even wilder rumors began circulating throughout the community. It seemed like people weren't even trying to help find Myron and were more so caught up in the mystery of his case. Some of the rumors were that Myron had run away to become a drug dealer or that he was a casualty of a gang war. And even worse, there were rumors that his mother had sold him because she needed money. One man persistently called the police station claiming that Myron had been kidnapped and molested by a well-known crack dealer in the neighborhood. The caller said after an argument with his wife that the dealer got drunk at a bar near OK Fish and Chips and found Myron. The caller went on to say that the dealer beat Myron to death with a rock and buried him in the backyard of a crack house near Myron's house and was going around bragging about it. But when police found this caller and brought him to the station, they found out that he was lying. Apparently, the caller's girlfriend had left him for the same person he was accusing of killing Myron and he was just trying to get revenge. The random phone calls continued and in 1990, Myron's family began receiving them as well. They talked about it in a 1991 interview with Dave Newbart of the Phoenix New Times. In the article, Myron's grandmother, Ruthie Trailer, says she got the first call. Ruthie says she thought she was talking to a granddaughter in Texas, but when she asked the caller for their mother's name, they immediately hung up. Myron's grandfather, Claude, answered the next call, which came a few months later. 
Claude says a man asked for Myron, but when he told him that Myron was missing, that person also quickly hung up the phone. Myron's best friend, Nikosi Burton, received the last call. He says the caller asked him about Ruthie since she had recently been hospitalized and they were wondering how she was doing. Nikosi told him that she was recovering and doing well. And just like the last two times, the caller hung up. Myron's family and Nikosi believed that Myron could have been on the phone or that it was someone who knew where he was. The phone calls eventually stopped, but then the family started receiving anonymous letters. In the first letter, the author kept referring to Myron as Byron and said his disappearance was linked to the Mexican mafia and named two men in the neighborhood, Kiko and Uncle Tony. The letter said that Myron was killed along with a family in South Phoenix. Quote, now why isn't the Phoenix police doing anything about it since a dozen people have come forth? The word on the street is that Kiko is a paid snitch working for them, end quote. The anonymous author continued to write to the family, and in different letters, he still kept mentioning Kiko. One letter said that Kiko had burned down an old chicken yard in the 80s and that he was angry Kiko hadn't been questioned in Myron's disappearance. In another letter, they said that Myron's body had been fed to hogs and that the rest of his remains had been thrown in the trash. Sandra did confirm that a man named Kiko had lived in Debbie's neighborhood, but nothing was ever done about the letters or the information that was provided in them. After Claude and Ruthie died, Sandra moved into their home. One day, there was a loud knock at the door, but she refused to open it because she was home alone. When Sandra peeked through the window, she saw three men standing outside. One of them shouted through the door that his last name was Trailer and he was visiting from Texas. The man wanted to know if his family lived at the home and even asked Sandra about her son, Martel. Sandra shouted back through the door that they should come back another time. And when she peeked through the window again, she saw the men driving away in a white van with what she thinks were letters on the side that said trailer. The men never came back until this day, Sandra regrets not opening the door. She always wonders if maybe it was Myron trying to come home. In 1991, detectives also received an anonymous letter saying that Myron had been buried on private property near 24th Street and Jones Avenue. That's about four minutes away from where Myron was last seen. Police conducted a search of the area, but no evidence was found. Unfortunately, there have been no other updates in Myron's case since. Remember when I mentioned that Debbie's boyfriend, Gitas Mintz, was the only suspect in Myron's case? Well, police theorized that Mintz and Myron got into an argument at OK Fish and Chips because Myron had confronted Mintz about his criminal activities. Police also believed that Myron's body was buried near the store. In 2009, Gitas Mintz was arrested for stabbing his girlfriend and her mother. The girlfriend did not survive the attack, and he was charged with second-degree murder and aggravated assault. Mintz was later sentenced to 42 years in prison. He's currently housed at Arizona State Prison in Yuma and is eligible for release in January 2047. The lack of progress in Myron's case took a toll on his family, but they didn't give up hope. Unfortunately, three years after Myron disappeared, Debbie slipped deeper into her addiction. She quit her job and would go missing for extended periods of time. By 1991, her family wasn't even sure where she lived. 
Years later, in 2002, Debbie passed away from cancer. She was 45 years old. Sandra continues to advocate and search for Myron, saying, quote, I still keep hope alive. I don't know what happened to him or he'd be here right now. I surely wish I did, end quote. Over the years, Sandra has collected various documents and photos of Myron's case in a green box, which is now filled to the top. I hate to accuse a mother of harming their child, especially since Debbie was already under a lot of scrutiny for Myron's disappearance. But for the sake of theories, what if she was involved? Debbie was having trouble raising the boys, according to Sandra, and she did have a drug problem. The only thing is, she lived with her dealer, so what sense does it make to sell Myron to Mintz? Also, I question Debbie's silence in the years following Myron's disappearance. It seems like after she was cleared by the polygraph that there wasn't much effort on her part to continue looking for her son. If Debbie knew anything else about Myron's case, she never publicly said anything, and I have a feeling that whatever guilt she may have had weighed heavily on her until she died. Gidas Mintz remains the only suspect in this case, but I'm confused about a few things. First of all, did police ever verify that Mintz was actually bitten by a dog? Are there hospital records to confirm this? Did police ever see the wound for themselves? Police believe that Mintz killed Myron after they argued at the store, so maybe that was his usual spot to sell drugs. Did police ever interview the OK Fish and Chips employees about that? Also, if police believe that Mintz killed Myron, why didn't they continue searching for him beyond the vacant lot near OK Fish and Chips? The jealous boyfriend who kept calling the police with that wild story about the local drug dealer was way too specific in my opinion. It seemed like he was talking about Debbie and Mintz, but I couldn't confirm any other relationships Debbie had besides the one with Myron's father, Charles's father, and Mintz. Maybe the jealous caller was trying to drop hints, but police did eventually confirm that his story never checked out. If Myron's disappearance was linked to gangs in the area, then maybe Mintz owed money to people and they kidnapped Myron in retaliation. However, during my research, I never found any direct links to Mintz and gang activity. Finally, why weren't the calls and letters that the trailers received looked into more? Someone could have been trying to throw the family off, or maybe they really did know something. Detectives did travel to California and Texas to search for Myron based on tips they had received, but nothing came up. If Kiko and Uncle Tony were involved like the letters said, then nothing was done about that either. Were they being protected by the police? And if so, why? There's so many unanswered questions, but if anyone knows anything regarding the disappearance of Myron Tamel Trailer, please contact Detective William Anderson of Phoenix PD at 602-262-6151. His agency case number is 880-97415. You can also contact Brenda Galarraza or Claudia Silva of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-843-5678. Lastly, you can contact Justin Driscoll of NamUs at 817-240-4106. Myron's case number is MP3935. When he was last seen, Myron was 5'5", 106 pounds with brown hair and brown eyes. He was wearing a red and white striped shirt, white shorts with a blue print, and white sneakers. Myron had a scar that was half an inch long on the right side of his face, and he usually wore brown reading glasses, but he didn't have them on the day he disappeared. 
If he's still alive today, Myron would be 45 years old. Thank you all so much for joining me on this week's episode. NTCF Podcast is available on all major streaming platforms. Please be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening on. You can find all sources used for this episode in the show's notes. Also, if you want to share your thoughts and opinions about this case, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at NTCF Podcast. I'll be back soon with a new episode. So until then, goodbye for now.